Greetings, quicksters. That's a, a new word I've just made up. I'm running it by focus groups, which I think it's supposed to convey a sense of retro, but with a modern twist. Anyway, talking of retro with a modern twist, welcome to episode 11, the penultimate episode in the season of the Kino Quickies podcast, in which we watch and talk about 1930s quota quickie films. Way back in the early days of the British film industry, a law was passed which required all UK cinemas to ensure that a certain percentage, or quota, of the films they screened were British. This meant that from the coming of sound at the beginning of the 1930s up until 1938, when the law was amended, hundreds of films were made quickly and on tiny budgets to satisfy the requirements of the legislation. Many were terrible, but some of them were tinged with brilliance. My name is Dominic Delaghi, and along with our in-house quota quickie expert, Dr Lawrence Napper of King's College London, we have, as a service to the nation, lovingly curated two seasons of these brilliant-tinged films to screen at the Kino Cinema in Bermondsey Square, London SE1. After each film, we have a relaxed and informal chinwag with a specially invited expert guest. The guest for this episode is Richard Farmer, and the film is Death on the Set from 1935, a double murder mystery starring Henry Kendall in a double role. There's now only one film remaining in the season, and it's one you really shouldn't miss, the first ever sound version of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, although it's not called that, it's called Scrooge. To book tickets for this festive extravaganza, go to ticketsource.co.uk forward slash Kino Quickies. That's ticketsource.co.uk forward slash Kino Quickies. But to get a taste of what you're in for, keep listening because I'm about to stop waffling on now and go instead to me waffling on last Sunday at the Kino where it fell to me to introduce the film and our special expert guest to the expectant Kino audience. Hello everybody, good afternoon. Welcome to the Kino for our penultimate film in Kino Quickies Season 2, Death on the Set. It's a film that's based around film studios, you could probably tell from the title and that picture. But the death itself, or deaths maybe, don't take place on the set. So we have been missold, we've been, been sold a smelly fish. Uh, my name is Dominic Delaghi and as usual we have our quota quickie. Where's it gone? Where are you? You're not in your normal seat. That's Dr. Lawrence Napper. That's his name, Dr. Lawrence Napper. I forgot to mention his name last time of uh, King's College London. And our guest for this episode is Richard Farmer. There he is. Uh, Richard is a researcher at Bristol University. Uh, his special area of research is UK film studios. It's part of a wider project about European film studios called Studio Tech. Uh, play this to your bosses, Richard. You'll get a little brownie point for that. I'm hoping Twickenham Studios is on his radar because uh, we've got nothing to talk about otherwise because that's just the main thing. Um, I'm recording the pod for the podcast. We've got Robin over here. He's our, our sound man. Uh, so Death and Set stars Henry Kendall. He's our kind of quota quickie hero. He, he's been given the ultimate accolade of being the face of our social media profile. <laughs> and in this film, he plays two characters identical characters, because it's the same person, but they're not related to each other at all, which is, it sort of stretches plausibility a bit. One's called Kaylee Morden. He's this kind of nasty film director. I don't know if it's based on a real person or not, maybe, maybe we'll get to that. And Charlie Marsh, who's a kind of dissolute drunk who hangs around East End dance halls, as they call them. Uh, Kaylee wears glasses and smokes cigarettes, and Charlie doesn't wear glasses and smokes pipes. <laughs> That's how you tell the difference. It's like Superman and Clark Kent without the smoke. Or in fact, well, they were the same person, so that's, that analogy doesn't work. Uh, and they also, they do swap identities at one point, so it gets really confusing. I've been writing the synopsis for the podcast, and uh, I'm, still, I'm still not sure that I understand it. Uh, Richard has bought... It's based on a book of the same name by uh, uh, Victor McClure. I haven't read it because it's £736 on eBay, but Richard... <laughs> It obviously earns too much because he's got a copy and has read it, um, so might be able to fill in some of the plot holes. Now, the, the couple of scenes where Henry plays against Henry when Kaylee meets Charlie, and it's actually quite good. It's obviously rudimentary special effects, like a split screen thing kind of thing. You can't. It's quite quite sort of seamless. The only giveaway is the fact that one of the Henrys, 
does these quite long pauses before he says his line. And the other Henry picks up his cues far too quick. So you can tell he got slightly out of sync. But I mean, it's quite, I mean, I, I, I'm quite impressed. I like a special effect. In Henry Kendall's autobiography, which is this book here, I remember Romano's, which is a, a fantastic book, much less than 700 quid. He only talks about his film career, his quickie career, briefly. And he, he doesn't seem to have been that pleased with them. Um, <laughs> And he only said he only really did them because he'd moved his mum into a flat and needed to keep, keep up the payments. He quite liked the ghost camera and he quite liked the shadow, which we've not seen yet. But that is very good. He doesn't mention in his list, lend me your wife or a wife or two or any of his wife films. Um, but he does talk about death on the set in this extract from the book. It's, it's quite long, so I'm going to be as quick as I can. I won't do his voice either because I'll... Uh, I'll, no, I'll strangle myself. I can't possibly. I fell into the snare of the quota quickie. These were films made on a shoestring, with a, and with a few honourable exceptions, most of them were pretty bad. And incredible as it may seem, I made 24 of them in two years. Many of these quickies were made at the old Twickenham Studios run by Julius Hagen, who had surrounded himself with the finest bunch of technicians it was possible to work with. Although Uncle Julius worked until we were dropping, the place had a wonderfully happy atmosphere and no one complained. I do not, I work with actors, I do not <laughs> believe that. We thought nothing of working round the clock and most of the films were shot in less than three weeks. I remember one day beginning at, at the usual nine o'clock and working through till two the next morning. That day's shooting finished with a final close-up of me, which is also the last shot of the film. I was so exhausted by the 17 hours under the lamps that they had to give me brandy and coffee to keep me awake. The film was aptly called Death on the Set. So bear that in mind in the final shot. Next morning, I was on set again at eight o'clock after four hours sleep being made up for the starring role in the next picture. But when Julius Hagen saw the first day's rushes, he nearly had a fit. Instead of the debonair Henry Kendall, he saw an elderly gentleman with bags under his eyes, tottering onto the screen and fluffing his lines. He suddenly realized he had worked me to the limit, so he packed me off to Brighton for a week at his own expense. Uh, so um, that's obviously Hen uh, Henry likes Julius and uh, this was even though he's exhausted, was a happy experience for him. He says, anyway, I don't know. So it was produced by uh, Julius Hagen, of course, directed by Leslie Hiscott, who uh, directed our last film, which was called The Fire's Been Arranged. Um, also stars, I mean, th there are people listed who I don't really know. I do know Gary Marsh, who's in every film, and Wally Patch, um, who you've seen in many, many films as the two police officers. Um, right, we're going to get into it. Obviously, we're going to see our trailers first for Talking Pictures TV, uh, and afterwards a little break, get yourself a drink, come back and we'll have our Q&A. And I'll see you in about an hour and a bit. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. And as the keynote audience settles down to watch Death on the Set, you must be feeling pretty sad that you can't be there with them to watch the film. Let me try to cheer you up by offering instead an illustrated plot synopsis to keep you up to speed. Thin gruel I know compared to actually watching the film, but we do the best we can. The thing to remember about Death on the Set is that, as mentioned, it stars Henry Kendall in two roles. Kaylee Morden is a bad-tempered and immoral film director, and Charlie Marsh, Kaylee's unrelated doppelganger, who is a drunken minor criminal. The subterfuge and intrigue in the film are all premised on the fact that these two unpleasant men are indistinguishable from one another, and that does mean it gets a bit confusing if you're not paying very close attention. In fact, even if you do pay close attention, I'm not sure the film's internal logic makes any sense, but hey-ho. So watch me now as I attempt to cut through the confusion and try to bring clarity to the plot of Death on the Set. After the title sequence, we're straight into the thrilling action as a car pulls up outside a nightclub and four gangsters start to smash the place up and steal jewellery from the well-heeled patrons at gunpoint. Get back your places and keep quiet! Come on, hand them over. One young man, Jimmy, tackles one of the thugs. Jimmy's got guts, you know. The police arrive pretty sharpish. The gangsters scarper, and Jimmy embraces his attractive companion, but they are interrupted by... Oh, dear. Well, that was pretty rotten. I suppose the best I'll ever get out of you three half-wits. 
All right, that's all for tonight, everybody. Nine o'clock on the set tomorrow. So it wasn't a real robbery. It was just some actors shooting a film. The rude man you heard there was the film's director, Kayleigh Morden, played by Henry Kendall, and the so-called three half-wits he berated were Jimmy, played by Lewis Shaw, Jimmy's fiancée, Constance Lyon, played by Rita Halsham in her one and only film appearance, and Lady Blanche, played by Jean Stewart. To the side of the set, two real police officers, Inspector Burford, played by Gary Marsh, and Sergeant Crowther, played by Wally Patch, are talking to this man, Mr Russ, the studio manager, played by Alfred Wellesley. Yes, that's how pictures are made, Inspector. Teamwork. Everybody pulling together. Yes, I've noticed. Yes, we are what you might call one big happy family. I should be happy too if I got an enormous salary for kissing pretty girls. <laughs> nice figure of a woman, that one in black. Yes, Lady Blanche. And she knows it. Are you talking about me? Sorry, miss, I was only trying to use my esprit de corps. To the low, all things are low. Is that so? Yes. I suppose you're the sort of man that likes to whisper in corners and expect not to be overheard. You probably write things on walls too. Hmm. <laughs> Why are the police hanging around the film studio? As they go off with Mr Russ for a convivial drink, the unpleasant Cayley Morden arrives back at his office. A figure in the shadows outside his window taps on the glass. Morden clearly recognises him, but gestures for him to hide after somebody knocks on his door. Come in. It's Lady Blanche. Oh, it's you. Cayley, I think your behaviour is absolutely intolerable. Is that so, sister? Oh, and don't call me sister. Oh, I didn't mean it literally. I have too much respect for my mother. After tomorrow, I never want to see you again as long as I live. Huh, you won't if I see you first. Mm. And to think I was once fool enough to let you make love to me. Oh, I can hardly believe it. I wouldn't believe it myself, but I've got one or two letters from you to prove it. Oh, look here, Blanche, I'm busy, so push off. Cayley, I came here to ask you for those letters. I can't spare them. I sleep with them under my pillow. And I mean to have them. Don't drive me to desperation. Am I supposed to be scared? So, Cayley Morden is not just an odious man, but a philanderer and a blackmailer. And we're only five minutes in. After Blanche leaves, Morden locks the door and opens the window. All right, come in. A man clambers through the window and stands before Morden. But for the lack of spectacles, he's identical to Morden. This is Charlie Marsh, played by, you guessed it, Henry Kendall. What the hell do you mean by coming here, Marsh? I want some more money. I had to come here because it's the only way I could get hold of you. You know that. The good thing for you, I did come. I've given you enough money to live in a palace. All I ask of you is to hide away somewhere in the East End and keep out of sight. I want to tell you something, if you'll listen. When I was hanging around here, I saw Inspector Burford and Sergeant Crowther come into the studio. Well, what of it? They're on to something. They saw me last night in an East End dance hall. What? Have you been advertising yourself in dance halls? Well, I, I can't hide away in a garret all day and all night, can I? I suppose you know what'll happen when the police find out there are two of us. Just because you can't lie low and drink yourself silly in private. It's not like you to be scared of the police. If they get us both in their hands at the same time, it's all up. You can bet your life the American police have given them all the dope. American police? The game is up. There is clearly history to the relationship between these two men who are, I state again, identical but, implausibly, unrelated. It does raise the interesting question, though, why were the police at the studio and which of these two men are they after? Up in Mr Russ's office, we may be about to find out. Now tell me, how long has Caelan Warden been directing pictures for you, Mr Russ? Well, this is his third picture. And it looks to me like being a winner. No, Kayleigh Morden isn't the easiest man in the world to get on with. <laughs> well, you know what film directors are. <laughs> but he certainly can make pictures. No wonder these fellows lead a queer life, Mr Ross. One long temptation, I should say. There's nothing wrong with our studio, Sergeant. Uh, and what they do when they leave here, uh, that's their business. I bet they get up to some nice little games on the quiet. I wonder where Kayleigh Morden spends his evenings. Mr Russ is called to the studio floor and leaves the officers alone. It's him, all right, sir. I wonder. I took a good look at him, and it's him. And another thing, that manager knows there's something queer about him. I'll go outside and see which is his car. OK. As Sergeant Crowther goes outside to keep watch in the car park, Morden and Marsh are, for some reason, exchanging clothes. Morden is going to lead the normal way in Marsh's clothes, and Marsh is going to wait till the coast is clear and sneak out the back way. Now you keep out of sight till the coast's clear. Yes, but when they think it funny, they see you going out dressed in my clothes. You think for yourself. Now remember what I've told you. Whatever happens, you must not be seen. And keep off the bottle. Out in the car park. Seen anything yet? Not yet, but that's his car. They duck down as Marsh approaches. 
When I say Marsh, I do of course mean Morden, but the police don't know that. He gets into a car. Is it Marsh's car or Morden's? We don't know. Then it is the same bloke. Let's see where he's going. Come on. After this reputable East End drinking den called the Belbeck Social Club, a wary Cayley Morden, dressed in Charlie Marsh's clothes and minus his trademark spectacles, slowly descends the stairs to the bar. He takes a seat, just as the two police officers enter the bar. They observe him from a distance, unnoticed by Morden, until the barman tips him off. There you are, Charlie. Thanks. on the stairs. There doesn't seem to be much doubt about it, Sergeant. What does he want to come down here for? With all that lovely temptation in the studio. Some men like to hide their sins. Jekyll and Hyde, if you ask me, sir. Morden is joined by a woman, Laura Kane, played by Eve Grey. She obviously knows Marsh well, and Morden plays along as best he can. Hello, Charlie. Oh, uh, hello. I thought you'd give me the bird. You know you're an you? Have I? You know those two coppers are on the stairs, too. Yes, I've been told that already. Got a light? Sure. Do you mind if I have one? No. Thought you didn't smoke cigarettes. Well, I don't as a rule, but I've lost my pipe. Hello, Inspector. So you've, um, you've found me out, have you? Oh, what made you think I wanted you? Oh, I thought he might have been following me. No, as a matter of fact, we came here in the hopes of seeing somebody. People in our business have to get about, Mr. Morton, and we have to keep our eyes open. Do you think you'll find the person you're looking for? Well, which one's that? Mm, same one that you were looking for last night. Maybe. Come on, Charlie. You don't want to trust these policemen too much. <laughs> Don't worry, they won't give me away. So Sergeant Crowther has just referred to Morden as Mr. Morden in front of Laura, although she thinks he's Marsh. I think at this point he's Morden, pretending to be Marsh, pretending to be Morden. Okay. So Morden and Laura leave the bar together, but what do the police make of it all? Sergeant Crowther, who's a bluff, say-it-as-you-see-it kind of bloke, believes there is one man, Morden, leading a double life, an accomplished film director by day and a seedy barfly by night. Inspector Burford, more your cerebral public school posh type, is beginning to suspect there may be two people. He puts Crowther on reconnaissance duty and goes off home for the evening. In Laura's rented upstairs room on Ansitter Street, Morden paces uncomfortably. Sergeant Crowther arrives and enters the downstairs room of the lodging house to talk to the owners. Morden and Laura eavesdrop from the landing. Well, it's them you're after. Well, there's no mystery about her, but as for him, he's a proper mystery. What's he do all day? How do I know? What time does he go out? Well, I've got something else to do besides watching my lodgers about. I don't know when he comes in or when he goes out, or what he does or where he gets his money from. What are you trying to hide? I've told you everything I know, and if you want to know some more, you better go up and ask him. Or better still, ask her. I shall be back to see her tomorrow. And if you tell him I've been asking any questions, you might be sorry to see me. Having listened in to this textbook example of community policing, Morden forms a plan, although to us, the viewer, it's still not entirely clear what he's playing at. Do you know some place you could disappear to for a couple of days? Well, it's my aunt's place in Lebanon Street. You know, we talked about living there before. Well, isn't your aunt there? No, you know, she's in hospital. Oh, yes, of course. Well, would you go there and wait for me to come along to you? Why? Well, there's something else. It may not be necessary, but if it is, I want you to swear that I've been there with you all the time and never left you. Well, why? Well, look here, Laura. I'm up against it. I'm beginning to think you are. Will you go right on there now and take me with you? And then I suppose you'll push off and leave me flat. Oh, I'm not asking you to do it for nothing. There's money in it. Well, what's it all about? Well, if anybody asks you, I want you to swear that I've been there with you all the time. I'll pay for it. If you do this for me, you'll never regret it. All right, Ducky. Inspector Burford has arrived back home to find he has a visitor waiting for him. It's Mr Caleb Freshman of the Cincinnati Police. He's played by Ben Weldon. Freshman has a theory that there are two Cayley Mordens and he has a particular reason for wanting to track them down. His brother was a bank cashier murdered by a man who calls himself Philip Cardross. They had to let him go though when dozens of respectable witnesses came forward to give Cardross or Morden an alibi. But how has Freshman managed to track Morden to the other side of the Atlantic? Ten days ago, I received a cable from a fellow who worked in the same bank who was vacationing here in England. He was out looking around London. 
and the cable said he saw Philip Cardras in an East End joint called the Belbeck Social Club. I've just come from there. I saw him myself. And the very next day, I got a cable saying he'd seen another Philip Cardras at a film set at the Titan Studios. He was a big shot called Kaylee Morton. The same man, Mr. Freshman. Maybe it is and maybe it isn't. But if there are two men, you've seen them both. Laura and Morden, who's still disguised as Marsh, as I'm sure you remember, arrive at Laura's aunt's house in Lebanon Street. Here we are. So this is your aunt's place? Oh, you needn't worry. They won't find me here. Well, supposing the neighbours see you? Oh, that's all right. I was brought up here. They haven't seen me for three years, but they know me. Come on, take off your coat. No, i got to go. I'll be back tomorrow night. Hey, you're not going to commit a murder or something, are you? <laughs> of course not. Don't be silly. Well, all this talk about alibis and things makes me wonder. I'll come back here tomorrow night to fetch you. I may not need an alibi, but if I do, remember you're to swear that I haven't left here between now and tomorrow night. See? Good night. And now we return to the real Charlie Marsh, who is even more drunk than usual. After discovering that Laura was not in her rented room on Ansitter Street, he thinks she's been cheating on him and stumbles into her aunt's house looking for her. The pretend Charlie Marsh has only just left, so Laura is confused and suspicious. Wait a minute. Where have you been since you left here half an hour ago? That's all right. Don't you worry about that. I suppose you did leave here half an hour ago. You said I did. Changed your clothes, too. You're not Charlie Marsh at all. Don't be a fool. I'm not going to be, and I tell you, you're not Charlie Marsh. Oh, I'm not, eh? Well, if I'm not Charlie Marsh, who is? I thought there was something about you all along. There are two of you, and I want to know what the game is. You hold your silly... Take your hands off me and answer my question. Which is you and which is the other fellow, and what's the idea? I don't know what you're talking about. No? Well, you soon will. I'm going to that club where I'm known. I don't need any alibis. I haven't got anything to hide. And I'll tell you something. If that sergeant's there and wants to know anything from me, I'm going to tell him. You mean that? You know I do. You're not going to any club. Now, what's the matter with you? You're not going to talk to any sergeant. Leave me alone. You take your hands off me. You're not going to talk to any sergeant. In a drunken rage, Charlie throttles Laura, who collapses onto the bed. He tries to revive her, but realises she's dead. He attempts to cover his tracks, drinks some more whiskey, and leaves. The following day, or possibly later that night, the timeline is quite confusing, Marsh is back at the film studios. He lets himself into Morden's empty office via the window again to wait. In the studio, Morden, as Morden, is being his usual unpleasant self to everybody on set. The shooting over, Lady Blanche and Jimmy have something to say to him. I want to see you before you leave the studio, Morden. So do I. All right, you two, go and get your makeups off. I'll have you call when I'm ready to see you. I'm going to the office to wash and change. If anybody wants to see me, tell her to make it later, will you? In the corridor outside Morden's office, a woman nervously awaits his arrival. This is Mrs Hipkins, played by Elizabeth Arkell. She works as maid to the young starlet and Jimmy's fiance, Constance Lyon. Well, what do you want? May I have a word with you, Cayley? No, you may not. And I don't want you hanging around outside my office, either. There was a time when you felt differently. Yes, but that was a long time ago. You don't seem to realise that I know quite a lot about you. Oh, you do, do you? Well, my advice to you, for your own sake, is forget it. Now, you get back to the dressing rooms. I've got several people coming to see me. And I don't want them to see you hanging around here. Go on, off you go. She leaves, defeated. Marsh is waiting in the office, drinking whiskey as Morden enters. He says that if Morden has money for him, he'll leave the country that very night. You'll have nothing to fear from me anymore. I've got everything mapped out. I'm, I'm going to South America. You've had nearly £4,000 out of me, Marsh. Well, this will be the last, I swear it. Yes, you said that before. Everywhere I go, you turn up like a jackal. But this time, you've been too clever for yourself. You've played right into my hands, Marsh. Oh, cut all this out and let me get away. Well, what does it matter so long as I don't come back? There's no chance of your coming back because you're not going. Kaylee Morden's passing out tonight. Morden produces a gun from behind his back. You can't bluff me, Kaylee. I don't bluff. You're in my clothes. They can't tell us apart. This is the last time you're going to worry me. Don't be a fool. You can't do this sort of thing. You can't mean it. I'm covered always. I have a place to hide for a couple of days. And if the worst comes to the worst, I've got a complete alibi. I'm covered from every point of view, even to the silencer on the gun. It's Kaylee Morden who's going to die. From now on, I'm going to be Marsh. Kaylee, don't. Kaylee, you, you can't shoot. Kaylee, listen. There's something I've got to tell you. Kaylee, Kaylee, I must tell you. Kaylee! Marsh falls to the floor, dead. Morden drags the body to the other side of the room and hides it behind a changing screen. 
He then dresses as if about to leave, then calls reception. Ask Mr Fred and Lady Blanche to come here at once, will you? Make it snappy because I'm going home. While Mrs Hipkins is getting Constance into her dress, Jimmy receives the call from reception and heads to Morden's office. Blanche arrives too and demands the love letters again. Morden taunts her with them. Your husband will read them at breakfast tomorrow morning. They're all ready to post. Oh, but Kelly, you wouldn't do that. Oh, wouldn't I? <laughs> I want those letters. Very well, then. He stands and pockets the letters. Here they are. And now he hands her the gun. And that's one way of getting them. If you've got the nerve. Stay there, Jimmy. I'll show you if I've got the nerve or not. <laughs> What's the little girl going to do? You know, I've often wondered how a member of the aristocracy would behave in a situation like this. That gun's loaded and silenced. Come and get them. Put that thing down. Wait a minute. No man's going to dare me like that. Kaylee, those letters. You'll have to ask your husband for them in the morning. I'll have them now if you don't mind. Now look here. Be quiet, Jimmy. I know what I'm doing. I was fool enough to write them now. I'm fool enough to get them back. I'm going to count three. If you don't give them to me by the end of that time, I'm going to shoot. One. Now, Lady Blanche, put that thing down. Don't worry, she's only bluffing. I'm not bluffing. Two. Oh, I'm so sorry. I forgot to put my hands up. This is your last chance. He smashes the ceiling light and the room is plunged into darkness. In the blackness, a shot is fired. Lady Blanche and Jimmy leave the room to find a torch. In their absence, Morden rearranges the scene, heaving Marsh's body out from behind the screen. He plants Lady Blanche's letters in Marsh's coat pocket and slips away. When Jimmy returns to the room with a torch, he retrieves the letters to save Lady Blanche's honour and he too slips away, back to Blanche. Blanche thinks that she shot Morden dead, but thinks they can get away with it, as she was wearing gloves. Jimmy thinks they should own up and call a doctor. He's willing to say that he pulled the trigger, but Blanche will have none of it. Constance, who's been waiting for Jimmy to finish his meeting with Morden, gets bored of hanging around and goes up to Morden's office to find out what's going on. What's going on is not what she was expecting. <gasps> Mr Morden, I think he's dead. Good heavens. Jimmy and Lady Blanche arrive back outside at the car to find that Constance isn't there. Where's Connie? Gone to find you. Oh, Morden's upstairs. I think he's been shot. Get a doctor at once. Good heavens. Inspector Burford arrives with Sergeant Crowther and a doctor who examines the body. Doctor, how long did that man live after he was shot? That long. Sudden death, eh? Quicker than that. Hmm, I see. It's funny there's blood over here. It might mean that he was shot over here. In which case, how did his body get over there? Obviously, he was moved over there. Mm. It couldn't be suicide, then? Most decidedly not. Burford says he has to be somewhere else and sends Crowther off to interview Jimmy, Lady Blanche, Constance and Mrs Hipkins. But just before Crowther leaves, Burford notices something on the desk. Just a minute, Sergeant. See this? A pipe? A well-used pipe. A bit too well-used by the smell of it. Well, doesn't anything about this strike you as significant? Why shouldn't he smoke a pipe? It's quite a common habit. Yes, but not with Morden. He was a cigarette smoker. How do you know? You know, Sergeant, if you paid a little more attention to the observation of details, you'd get along better. Over at the Bellbeck Social Club in the East End, Morden, in the guise of his now late doppelganger Charlie Marsh, is waiting for Laura to turn up when who should he spy on the stairs but Inspector Burford? He melts into the crowd. Charlie Marsh been in tonight? Yes, he's over there. That's funny, I was talking to him just now. He must have gone, sir. Laura Kane been in? Haven't seen a sign of her all day, sir. Morden makes it back to Laura's Ancitor Street room and has instructions for Mrs Killick, the landlady. Here, there are two pounds. I want you to take these clothes away and burn them as soon as you get a chance. Why? Don't argue, you old fool. Now get a move on. Shortly afterwards, somebody else enters the room. Well, what do you want? You know me, Inspector Burford. Well, Inspector, what can I do for you? You better step along with me, Kayleigh Morden. <laughs> You've got me all wrong. My name's Marsh. We'll sort that out later. Look here, you trying to arrest me? Well, so far, it's an invitation. But I'll make it an arrest if you like. <laughs> well, it's not up to me to stop you making a fool of yourself. What's it all about? I'll tell you as we go along. Come on. Sergeant Crowther has finished his interview with Jimmy, Lady Blanche and Constance, and leaves. Jimmy, still trying to protect Lady Blanche's honour at the expense of his own liberty and his relationship with Constance, tells Constance something that simply isn't true. I believe he thinks I had something to do with it. He's a wooden-headed fool. Look here, Connie, I can't keep it up any longer. I killed Kelly Morden. What are you saying? I did. 
And what's more, I'm going to see Burford and tell him the truth. I don't believe you. I wish I didn't myself. At the police station, Burford questions Morden, who, you'll remember, is pretending to be Marsh. Morden claims that he, Marsh, has been plagued by Morden for years. Even in America, he was constantly getting arrested every time Morden committed the crime, so he returned to England to escape, only to find that Morden had returned too. Where were you last night? That's my business. What have you been doing all day? Oh, I've got an alibi to prove what I've been doing all day. A woman? Mm-hmm, a woman. I see. And you want to see her first and tell her what to say? Not at all. Now, look here, Inspector, I'll tell you the truth. I was with her until half past nine, then I left her to go to the club. She was going to follow me. I noticed she didn't, though. No, she didn't, and I'll tell you why she didn't. She's been hitting the bottle lately. Directly I left her, she must have gone to it good and proper. But I know enough about her to know that she won't move until I go back to fetch her. And you won't tell me who she is or where she is? <laughs> why should I? That's a pity you can't see your girlfriend tonight. Well, still, I dare say we can make you fairly comfortable here. Fearful of what Jimmy is about to do, Constance goes round to Lady Blanche's house. She appears on the stairs with her husband, Lord Umbridge, played by Robert Nainby. I'm sorry to butt in at this time of night, but it's about Jimmy. He's gone to tell Inspector Burford that he killed Cayley Morden. Do I know this man Jimmy, my dear? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that, Connie. Well, you were with him if he did, and you must know something about it. Really, my dear young lady? Well, shut up, George. Oh, I know you must be upset, but don't let your tongue run away with you. I want you to come to Inspector Burford's at once. Uh, Lady Blanche will return to her bed. She can't. You won't let him stop you from coming, will you? Am I the person you refer to as him? Shut up, George. Uh, that's the second time you've told me to shut up, my love. Well, shut up and stay shut up. Uh, yes, my pet. All right, I'll come to Inspector Burford's. Jimmy arrives at the police station and makes his false confession of murder to Burford, who is sceptical. As he's attempting to convince Burford and Crowther of his guilt, he spots a photograph on the desk. It's a younger Cayley Morden, together with Mrs Hipkins. Hello. What's the matter? Where was that taken? America. I didn't know Mrs Hipkins had been to America. Mrs Hipkin? Yes, you know, sir. Miss Constance Lyons' maid. I don't know. I've never seen her. You sure that's a picture of Mrs Hipkin? Of course I am. With this new information, Burford arranges for all the players to be at his flat in half an hour. Before that, though, he goes round to Constance's place, but not to see Constance. It's Mrs. Hipkins he wants to see. I shall want you to come round to the mortuary tomorrow to have a look at the dead body. Me? Why? It might remind you of something you've got to tell me. You don't think I've had anything to do with a murder? He shows her the photograph. So you know. That picture was taken in America. It's a photo of Kenny Morden and his bride. Yes, I'm his wife. Well, don't you think you'd better tell me about it? I married him 15 years ago. He left me soon afterwards. I threatened to give him away for something he'd done. I never saw him again till I met him at the studios. Back at Burford's flat, he has a visitor. Lord Umbridge. He's accompanied by Lady Blanche and Constance. Am I addressing uh, Inspector Burford? You are, sir. Before my wife makes a statement, I must warn you, what she is going to say is perfectly ridiculous. No offence, oh, my dear. Shut up, George. Oh, yes, my dear. So I came to tell you that I shot Cayley Morden. The shooting of Cayley Morden was an accident, and Lady Blanche is here to prove it. Ridiculous. Why, she's the worst shot in the county. What county? All of them, sir. Be quiet, George. Yes, my dear. Morden threatened me with things which, well, I, I needn't disclose at the moment. Quite right, my dear. Never disclose anything until you have to. He pulled out his revolver and taunted me, dared me to shoot. Dared you? Yes, almost invited me. And you did? Well, hardly like that. He thought I was going to then put out the light. Somehow, in the, in the confusion of the darkness, the, the gun went off. In another dizzying move of location, we now find ourselves back at the police station with Burford, Crowther, Jimmy, Constance, Mrs Hipkins and Cayley Morden, who, as Marsh, of course, lays out the case as he sees it. This woman says I'm her husband. At the same time, she says she's just seen her husband dead. You say that the man she says is her husband, who is presumably me, is killed. And the other man she says her husband, who is also apparently me, killed him. Well, what I want to know is, am I alive or am I dead or what? All in good time. This woman you call Lady Blanche says she shot me. Well, here I am. He says he shot me too. Now, on top of the whole thing, she says I'm a picture director. Well, I'm about fed up with all the things you don't know and all the things you think you do know. If I'm dead, I obviously can't be here. If I'm alive, you obviously can't be all there. If they shot the man you think I am, they're the people you're looking for. In the face of this irrefutable, if confusing logic, Burford releases Morden. It looks like Cayley Morden has confounded the constabulary and has got away with the murder of Charlie Marsh. So is that it? Has the monstrous Cayley Morden managed to escape the clutches of the law? We'll have to find out a bit later on, I'm afraid, because it's now time to return to the keynote for the Q&A with our special guest, Richard Farmer. 
If you want to hear the ending of the story, hang around until after the discussion and I will pull together all the loose ends as best I can, which will, of course, be extremely spoilery. I should also warn you that Death on the Set does not currently appear to be available to buy on DVD in the UK, so if you do want to find out how it all ends, this might be your only chance. But now, back at the Kino in full vivid colour, the audience have returned, refreshed and raring to go, gagging to hear the discussion about this week's Kino Quickie Quota Quickie, Death on the Set. So normally I ask the audience what they thought of it uh, and to have the, the answer returned to me in the form of a cheer. This time I want to find out who understood the story. <laughs> uh, arms up if you think you followed it all the way through. Oh, not very many. Oh, Richard has. But Richard's read the book. So what, what should we start with? Should we start with the... Um, should we ask you about your research first and then come to the film? Yeah, so... And, and Paul, by the magic of his fingers, he's going to put something special on the screen. Ooh. Ooh. Just for the podcast listener, we've put on two maps up there of the location of London Film Studios in the 1930s, and there'll be a link to that in the show notes. Richard Faraway with you. Tell us about your research. Yeah, so I'm part of a project that's uh, investigating British film studios between 1930 and 1960, uh, comparing them with film studios in France, Germany and Italy to see how they evolved, changed during that time, to get a sense of where they were, who worked there uh, and, and what it might have been like to, to actually uh, you know, be within the studios. Um, so in addition to the, you know, the, the written outputs that we're, we're, we're producing, we're also making a virtual reality edition of Denham Film Studios, which no longer exists. So when that's ready, people will be able to do a tour of Denham. Wow. So what, they, they, they put a headset on and that kind of it thing? It would be a yeah, virtual reality headset, and that would allow them to wander inside Denham and uh, if not meet Alexander Corder and at least feel that he is deliberately <laughs> snubbing you. Twickenham Studios looms large in the world of quota quickies. Have you researched them much, or is there a lot you can tell us about Twickenham? That yeah, so Twickenham's know? a really interesting case. Uh, it, one of London's earlier film studios. It wasn't built as a film studio originally. It was originally a roller skating rink. Um, and when that went bust um, during after the great roller skating bubble uh, of the early 20th century, um, it got converted into a film studio. Uh, but it was right alongside a railway line. Uh, and there are stories, possibly apocryphal, uh, but which I choose to believe because they're fun, um, which kind of indicate that once they brought sound in, the railway was much more of a problem. So I used to get people to kind of consult the railway schedules to work out when the trains were going to be going past, <laughs> and they may have to t uh, time their takes in order to do it without the, the, the whistles and bells of the trains kind of going past or the vibrations of the train shaking the studio floor. They could do that now because nothing runs on time. How do you when, <laughs> know when a train was coming? <laughs> Two weeks ago, Steve Chibnall was here, who wrote Quota Quickies, and he had, had a conspiracy theory that Twickenham was burnt down. So, so could you, do you know about the Twickenham fire? Could you talk about that? Because he thought that it was an insurance scam. I mean, I've not seen anything to indicate that it was, but it's not something I've, I've, I've read huge amounts about. Uh, so once Hagen had taken over the studio, he built a second stage. And not long after that opened, the first one burnt down. Whether that was in suspicious circumstances, it's, uh, it's difficult to say for sure. But he then kind of had to concentrate production in the remaining stage. But he also then, that was the point at which he expanded and bought two other film studios, one in Elstree and uh, one in Hammersmith. How did that go for him in his long-term career? It did I mean. not go well for him in his <laughs> long-term career. So this was the, uh, the beginning of the end for Uncle Julius, unfortunately. Oh. Over-expansion leads to collapse, basically. Yeah. He, he went away from what he was good at, which was producing these, these quota films very quickly, turning them out, doing a pretty good job with most of them, to, to turning his attention towards kind of more prestige pictures, um, which he didn't seem to be uh, quite so uh, adept at. The film in a fortnight is Scrooge. It's one of these prestige films. But this was not a prestige film, was it, Death on the Set? <laughs> it doesn't come across as such. No. And also, it's, it's distributed by Universal, so it really is, you know, Universal have bought a cheap film to comply with the law, whereas Scrooge is distributed by Hagen's own distribution outfit. So did certain studios in the UK on that map, did they provide films for certain American producers yeah often so um, so it's Twickenham is a universal one and well he also had contracts with RKO so but I mean like it's really obvious if you look at the map you know Warner Brothers First National at Teddington and Fox British Pictures at Wembley Park they are studios that were built by those companies 
in order to provide them with quota material. Yeah, I mean, the Teddington one expanded once Warner Brothers took over, but it kind of pre-existed it. Um, and Wembley was uh, built on the site of part of the Empire exhibition. I mean, quite a lot of these studios, if you look at them, like Joe Rock is a, is a quota outfit. There's also, I think, Nettlefold at uh, Walton. Yeah, down the bottom. And, yeah, that was, that's... Um, where's Sound City? Studios. Uh, Sound City Shepparton, so just above Nettlefold. There. Also a, a quota producer, so... It's on, quite the, on the other map, I like it. what I like about this map is that it has the phone numbers. <laughs> uh, you can't see it very clearly. Um, uh, so St Margaret's here. That's that's the Twickenham studio. Yeah, Pope, which, which is still operating today. And the uh, the phone number of that is um, Pope's Grove four 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 four. Yeah. <laughs> and if you phone that with the Twickenham pre-dial code, it still works. No. No, it doesn't. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would have believed that then. I was like, I'm going to do that. <laughs> so let's get on to this film in particular. You've read the book, Richard, so you're probably the only person in the room who knows the actual <laughs> story. But apparently it's quite different from the book. It is. The, the double uh, personality, the, you know, the, the two looky-likes. In the book, you only find out about, about two-thirds of the way through. So in, uh, in order for it to be a whodunit, you don't know who it's been done to. Whereas with the film, part of the appeal of the film, I think, is to get the, the Kendall twins, as they were known during shooting. <laughs> um, so you need them right from the beginning in order for that to be something that the, the audience can enjoy to, to really get a sense of, well, these are two people who are the same actor and isn't it amazing how they can use cinematic technology to, to, to bring two people to life and get Kendall to act with himself. Um, whereas the book... You know, you, you, you find out that Kayleigh Morden is, is dead, but then you don't find out that actually it's not Kayleigh Morden until quite a way into the, into the novel. So that's, that's the major difference. But the, in, within the novel, the site of the studio is far more important. So the layout of the studio, who can see what from particular doorways at any given time. It's a, it's a classic golden age whodunit. Well, that's stripped from this version, isn't it? <laughs> yes, there's, there's, I mean, this, you get uh, glimpses behind the scenes in the studio, but I mean, the, this, this story could essentially be set anywhere. I mean, I think that there is a, an interest in filmmaking, but I don't think that's kind of paramount to how the film works, whereas within the novel, the, the studio is explored in far greater depth. And you were saying before that it was part of a, of a franchise of novels set in... Film studios, murders yeah. in film studios. Yes, yeah, are so they all murders? Pretty much all of them. I yeah, it's better than so. I mean, there, there's this, the film studio was a, a really significant part of, of popular culture. I mean, it, I think people, cinema goers, really interested in watching films, but film culture more generally was interested in where those films came from. So the studios were site of uh, you know part of the, the cultural imagination. Um, you still get that today, I think. Um, and you had kind of a novel set in film studios. There were romances set in film studios. There's lots of um, work on continuity girls or, or young ladies who get plucked from obscurity to go and work in the studios and find glamour and true love in the arms of the leading man. Um, the novels that I'm more interested in are crime fiction. And there's at least half a dozen in the mid to, to late 1930s um, where people come to, to a sticky end in a, in a film studio. Most of them are lost kind of uh, fairly obscure novels but Cameron McCabe's Death on the Cut sorry Face on the Cutting Room Floor is still in publication John Dixon Cars uh, produced a novel during the Second World War based at um, Denwood Studios I think it is it's, it's a kind of combining two two of the larger British studios but they're all kind of interested in the the film studio as a place where nothing is as it seems so you can walk in and you know you go there one week and you're on the set which is a cruise ship and you go back into the same space the following week and it's a medieval castle um, and so nowhere is what it seems nobody is as they seem everybody's on the make everybody's really concerned that their darkest secrets will get found out and they'll be exposed as a as an adulterer or someone who kind of comes from a different background to the one that they're presented uh, as coming from by film publicity so, you know, for, for a crime novelist, that kind of sense of instability is, is something that they really have uh, fun playing with. And also, presumably, it's a closed space. I mean, when you're filming, you, you have to know who's there and who's not. Absolutely. And that helps some of the mystery. Yes, and, and kind of lots of, uh, you know, security guards stopping you going in. And, you know, just, you can't just wander around. And I think that sense of inside, outside, people wanting to go in 
to the studio, the fans especially, and not being able to get in means that they are all the more intriguing because they are known and unknown simultaneously. I was watching this series Babylon Berlin a couple of uh, while ago, and there was a murder in a film set in that as well, mm. during a take or something, I think. I can't quite remember the details now. Yeah, I mean, one of my colleagues has been looking at a, a film made at Ufa just after the conversion to sound, which is called The Murder in the Sound Film Studio. But that, again, that kind of idea of the studio being a place where information is constantly being captured. So the, the cameras might be running, the microphones might be on. Mm. How can the, the murder plot play with, with that idea of information constantly being recorded, but also not being necessarily trustworthy? The other thing about this that, that occurred to me about this film is... Um, there's lots of kind of, it seems to be in jokery. You know what film directors are and the idea that there's, um, you know, a, a, a stroppy, difficult to deal with film director. Do you think he's based on a real character or is, is, this, is this kind of nods and a wink to people in the industry in the 30s, you think? It's, it's difficult to say. I mean, I think it, it probably aligns with popular ideas about film directors that they are difficult and temperamental artists right. rather than it necessarily, it could be based on an, an actual director um, my suspicion is that it's probably more of a, a compositive um, just the idea of the, the director more generally um, anything from the audience anybody, um, anybody want to throw out uh, there's a hand there um, yeah I was, firstly I, was, I noticed uh, to me I wondered if the inspector the guy playing the inspector in it seemed very familiar to the guy Gary playing, Marsh. The, playing the inspector in the Mr. Pastry movie yes so this Mark was a guest on my other podcast, Soho Bites, and we looked at a film called Something in the City. It's a Mr. Pastry film. Well, it's not actually, is it? It's, it he basically plays Mr. Pastry, but isn't Mr. It's Pastry. It's interesting because he, he doesn't, he's not playing two characters. He's playing the same person, but he pretends to, he's a city banker, but he actually pretends to be an, art, an, an artist. Or yeah. He becomes an artist during the day, doesn't he? And Gary Marsh plays a newspaper editor or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's in all the films. He's in Scrooge next week as well. Right, but it's it's funny how he plays city editor exactly how he plays a a, a chief inspector. Yeah, yeah, perfect. <laughs> but the other question I had was, um, I saw the Hammersmith Studios. Did that become the Riverside Studios? Yes. That, yeah, I thought it was much. Yeah, I used to live quite near there and went there a, a lot. And I was wondering how many other of the studios sort of still are there? Uh, do they still survive? Did they kept, were they used? in later as, as TV studios or just what of the architecture is still there? Um, well, Lime Grove, which was the uh, Gaumont British Studios, um, that became the BBC Lime Grove uh, Television, um, which was originally you know, uh, converted to TV production as a temporary measure whilst they built the TV centre uh, and then carried on in parallel to that through to certainly the 1980s. That's now gone. Denham is now uh, has been raised to the ground the film processing labs they're still there they've just recently been converted to uh, to luxury accommodation um, the Islington studios um, the Gainsborough studios in Islington uh, are similar they've been uh, taken down now and replaced by by housing um, but Pinewood's still there Shepperton's still there um, the rock studios in Elstree is now BBC Elstree well, Strictly uh, Come Dancing is filmed isn't it I think Yep, uh, I think that what was the British International Studios is now Elstree, but the MGM Studios that were built at Elstree have now have, have gone down as well. So there's been several studios at Elstree through the years, which can be quite confusing trying to work out which is which when a production um, is going on. The Walton-on-Thames Studio, um, the powerhouse that was built for a proposed expansion is still there but the studios themselves have, uh, have, have, have now disappeared. But in several of these cases, street names have been changed or new streets that are built on the sites reflect the filmmaking heritage of the, of, of, of the places themselves. I think it's, it's like a Gaumont Street or a Gainsborough Street now where the old Lion Grove studios used to be. So it reflects the, the filmmaking rather than the BBC's yeah. presence. Because I always used to find that quite odd at the, the Riverside Studios. It sort of became a theatre. Anyway, and I know the BBC used it for a long time before it became that theatre, and they still had a cinema there and after that. But yeah, they, they didn't seem to sort of you didn't sort of walk in and there was like history of the place, or they didn't seem to sort of hark back to to what it had been. And I think they're starting to do that more now, aren't they? With the, in, the, in, the, in the history, I think that some, some just of the in the terms yes. of blue plaques, maybe, and, yeah. and like you say, street names. And yes, stuff. And I think that Twickenham um, is is increasingly interested in its history because I think it's the oldest film studio that's still working in in London. And bits of it actually appear in, in the film. 
Um, so when they're the, the night shots outside, when they're crouching down behind the car, um, that's actually the exterior of the of the studio. Um, so you can look at old photographs and work out exactly where they were. It's quite amusing in the in the production reports for Death on the Set. There's there's one there's one little item in Kinney Weekly which says. You know, in death on the set, no sets are used. You know, we are just yeah. using the studio itself. Yeah. You know, you watch the film, it's like, there are plenty of sets. Yeah. <laughs> so there's very little studio, I think, yes. in, 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 in the film. I think Twickenham it had this kind of reputation for being kind of a, quite a fun place to work, though. You know, I think that Hagen, for all, he's kind of king of, the, king of the quickies, actually put together a pretty good team. And it's because he was so prolific. He was you know, constantly had you know, one production following the other very quickly. And so for, for um, film studio employees and uh, who, who were constantly used to being thrown out of work and to, the chance of saying, well, we'll go straight on to the next one and then on to the next one meant that he was able to actually put together a, a crack team, which meant that the films were often you know, better in terms of their production values than might be expected given the, the budgets that they had to work with. I suppose that sort of explains the affection with which Henry Kendall writes about... That yeah, experience. It is genuine, though, isn't it? It's not a sort of thing yeah. that I was all thought. Because I, mean, I don't believe that nobody complained. I th- I'm, I'm sure no. they did. <laughs> but I but think it, that he was held in affection. I mean, it's quite interesting that thinking about the ways in which they reminisce in those autobiographies, because George Pearson does the same thing. He writes about his time working for Hagen in the quota industry. And like he really bigs up how sort of, I mean, it has the same function in the autobiography, do you know what I mean? It's like, it's an abject period of his life where, the, you know, it was it was a kind of fall from grace and it was all awful. They really overemphasise how awful it, but how much it was camaraderie. And you think, well, you know, they're, they're sort of writing in the 50s and 60s where they think that these films are never going to be seen by anybody. You know, as far as they're concerned, they're gone and they're never coming back. So they can say what they like about the films. They could say they're as bad as they like. I mean, this wasn't the greatest film ever, but it wasn't as bad as some some of the accounts make out. Yeah, I mean, I think but you've got John Mills remembers working at, at Twickenham. And he says, you know, it's a nice place to work. But because it was basically operational 24 hours a day, there was never a chance to air the studios yeah. or the dressing rooms. <laughs> and they ended up smelling quite lived in. Um, and so that was that was less pleasant. I think he said something like, Cigarette smoke, orange peel, and farts. Which are it's a heady, heady <laughs> scent. <laughs> we have a, a, another person over there would like to say something. I wondered what what you thought about the the film, the scene we see being filmed. It seems to be, uh, is, it, is it parodying the badness of films or of British films? There's a kind of stiff staginess about what they're doing. The fu- where he goes off to fight, it's very funny. So what are, what 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 are they what are they sending up there do you think i think it is a parody of the, almost what would become kind of synonymous with with the quota quickie you know unfairly perhaps mm. but this kind of overacting and you know bad dramatization and then the passionate kiss and the you know the terrible acting and then suddenly it kind of takes down just half a notch and the rest of the film looks slightly more <laughs> kind of well made as a as a comparison but it's a really interesting way of opening a film because mm. it's, it's clearly an artificial way of showing how a film is made before you get that shot revealing that the director is there and it's on a film set you get half a dozen maybe different camera setups both inside and outside the building so it's clearly this isn't couldn't happen like that um, but it's 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 quite fun and several of the novels start in a similar way where something dramatic is happening and then suddenly somebody is dead on the floor and then you hear the director shouting cut and everyone goes oh we're in a film studio um, so I think that there is a a sense of fun and playfulness with that that opening sequence it's interesting to compare that with the opening of shooting stars the Asquith silent which is also set in a film studio where it, it does the same thing it starts with the scene that you think is going to be the film and then it sort of pulls back to reveal but as, from memory Asquith it's a close-up of him on a horse blah 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 and then it just pulls back so there isn't that fakeness where like you know there's loads of editing and and therefore that isn't the shot but Asquith is more careful to sort of make it more plausible. Mm. There's also quite a lot of films in the 30s made at the BBC we saw one last season mm. and there was the the uh, Arthur Askey film on the roof what's that called? Bandwagon. Bandwagon and there's mm. lots of those that um, yeah. that was a similarly kind of glamorous place where it's all cutting edge and yeah. well the, the, the bandwagon uh, sequences on the roof are shot on the roof of the Lime Grove studio. Oh are they? They are um, oh. so when that studio was designed it was designed with a flat roof so they could use it as an exterior shooting lot 
um, and didn't often get used for that because the, the weather was not good enough in central London. Um, but they decided to turn it into the roof of the BBC. Am I right in thinking that Lime Grove was a massive pain in the arse because all of the sound stages were on top of each other? Yes, it was you know, a vertically integrated yeah. studio in the worst <laughs> sense of the, uh, of, of the word. So it was quite why they decided to keep on building there is, is a bit unclear. Um, so it started as a as a silent studio, and then they re- renovated it quite extensively in the early 1930s, knowing that it's right next to a railway, and knowing <laughs> that they had a very limited <laughs> footprint, and they stacked you know, a couple of the stages on top of each other. Nothing ever seemed to quite align in the different buildings, and so... Everything you, has to go up and yeah. down in the lift the whole time. Yes, which they... The set, so and there's, there's wonderful stories of, um, of how difficult it was to, to make films there. Uh, so when they shot 39 Steps in the late 30s with, uh, with Donat... Yeah. Um, people walking up and down Lime Grove could hear the cattle that had been brought down to the <laughs> studio, especially because they, they kept them on the roof until it was their turn uh, to be before the cameras. So that was um, considered to be quite unusual. You were saying as well that lots of the studios were off the film, they're back on the studios. Mm-hmm. But you were talking about, because I was surprised on that map we were seeing before, how many studios were in the centre of London. Then they got further and further out of town. And this is because of the the pea supers. <laughs> yes. The the. the the horrible air pollution in London at the time. Yeah, so the film industry had a real problem with fog. It, it kind of got in the way of shooting. It got inside the buildings. So if you're alongside a railway track and a steam train's going past all the time, the air quality isn't going to be but great. it's smog rather than fog, so isn't it? So it's smog rather yeah, than yeah. fog. And so in the winter, many of these film studios became practically unusable. And it was only really after the, the Quota Act came through and there was a bit more money that they could invest in machinery to clean the air so the Gaumont studio, for example, found its air, clar- uh, air purification system while shooting Hendel Wakes on location at a factory in Lancashire. They said, oh, you've got nice clean air in here. Could we install something similar in, in our studio in Lime Grove? And so they did. One of the reasons to, to, to build at Denham or Pinewood or even Elstree was that the air quality was considered to be good enough that it wasn't going to interfere in production. That's also true of cinemas, actually. There's a whole load of adverts in the trade papers about installing stuff to keep fog out of your cinemas because sometimes the fog is so bad that people at the back of the auditorium can't see the screen. (laughs) People did die, didn't they? I mean, you know, from bad air. But the the grand opening of one of the uh, Hyams cinemas in, I think it was Elephant and Castle, was uh, spoilt by a particularly bad fog that got inside the auditorium. So they couldn't show a film and just had to do some community singing instead. (laughs) I think I've seen two hands up. Could go, or three. I was going to say, fans of um, Gary Marsh solving showbiz-related crimes need to check out Murder at the Windmill. Yes, I know that well, yeah, we've done that one. Well, I'm sorry about it. The other thing I was going to say, I I can't remember the title. Richard probably will. There's a very good... uh, studio set detective story from the late 40s by um, Edmund Crispin uh, called, I think, is it Different Hearses? I can't remember what it is, but, but the, the, his detective is an Oxford professor and he's hired to be the, um, the historical advisor on a kind of Gainsborough film. And as we know, Edmund Crispin, when he wasn't being writing detective stories, he was composing film music. Um, he composed music for the early Carry On films. So he did know what he was talking about, about uh, film studios. And I now can't remember what it's called. But anyway, it's got yeah. hearses in the title, but I'm afraid I can't remember yeah, exactly. But it's interesting. So that's that's yeah. good. There, yeah. there is also just one last thing. There's a, there's a Hollywood one, Studio Murder Mystery, which is 1921. 929, which does the same trick of having a murder at the beginning, which where you know, the detective says cut and the body falling down the stairs is just a dummy. But that has the added excitement because it's 1929. As they wander through the, through the film sets... Sometimes it's a silent film and sometimes they're making sound films. So it's... Because I mean, there, there are um, murder mysteries set in film studios that were from the late 1890s. It goes back, or maybe studios is kind of not quite the right word, the spaces of film production, we might want to call them at that time. So it goes right back to very early periods of cinema. One of the first short stories written about uh, filmmaking involves a murder. Uh, we've literally got five minutes left, so let's just rattle uh, through. It's not really a question. The observation I was going to make about Death on the Set is I've never been so conscious of the audibility of editing. Could yes. the, the budgets v-dum, v-dum, of, of quote, quote, each quote not extend to blooping ink? Because on every cut, there was a, there was a thump on the soundtrack. Yeah. Uh, it's really noticeable, this one. Because uh, when I do the synopses for the podcast, I take those out when I use a film clip, because you can really hear them when you're not watching it. But I, cu- I could... I could really hear them here as well. I think that might be because this print was has a 
interesting history going back to Channel 4. Um, ah, so it, uh, has, it has a Channel 4 print? Uh, or it's based on Well, we're not sure. Basically, I bought it as, on a DVD from America, and we think it was a pirate copy from a Channel 4 broadcast in the 80s. <laughs> we think, we don't know, but um, yeah. yeah, but you could really hear that junk, junk, junk every time there's a cut, couldn't you? If I can say something positive about the film. We all love the film. So apart the film. from the odd um, shadow of the boom on the wall that I spotted, I actually thought that it was shot not without some ingenuity. I don't want to go, go mad about it. But I thought some of the opening sequences for the first time they go in the cafe, when you see the face of the people and then the pans round and then you see the figure coming down the stairs. I thought there was some really, really... Hiscott, the director came up with some really interesting ways to introduce scenes and also cutting between scenes. There were a lot of black. So you suddenly go to black and you think, oh, it's just black, but it's not. It's a room where the door's about to open or the light's about to go on or the curtains are about to be pulled. So I think Hiscott, I think at this point, was sort of on the way up. <laughs> and, and I think he, and given the tight budgets and tight schedules, I think he does a pretty good job. There's a scene where he's searching the room looking for Laura and he's only lit by the the light in the, on the landing and that's really good it's really, really well shot I really think well you lit. get a sense that he's having fun actually hmm. don't you that he's I mean he, this is the sort of like this is kind of the heyday of his career I mean he makes loads of these films for Hagen and kind of later on he doesn't make that many films but at this point he's really like firing on all cylinders and actually enjoying it I think so just uh wanted to sort of briefly talk about the the doubling right because i i always love a sort of inexplicable doubling in <laughs> ye old films i mean mary pickford did it norma Shearer did it ask me about that but i i here i just wanted to ask because obviously it's sort of not really explained in the context of this film you know are they related is this an accident how did they meet each other so i was just wondering whether the book cast any light on that yeah so in the book they are not as identical as they are in the film um, so they are easy to tell apart if you look at them closely, which explains why when uh, Kaylee Morden shoots uh, Charlie Marsh, he does so through the head so that his face is shot off. Oh, um, that's unpleasant. Which um, then becomes makes him more difficult to, to, to identify. Um, so, say, within the, the novel, it's kind of he looks enough like him and he's in his office, so therefore he must be him. Um, whereas I think in in, in the film... The, the opportunity to have you know Kendall playing two, the only differentiation between them is a his kind of slurred accent, the yellow the, the, fingers, the, the yellow fingers and the parting, um, and maybe a pair of glasses. So you know that, that kind of changes how the the doubling has to work. Okay, we have to wrap it up there because Paul's looking twitchy. So in a fortnight, it's our Christmas <gasps> spectacular. Special. It's going to be There are fab. secret things happening. Plans are afoot to make it even better than usual. Uh, the film is Scrooge. So bring uh, your tinsel crowns. Exactly. It's the first ever talky version of Christmas Carol, and uh, it's an interesting version, I think. I think it's a good one. And the guest is Ming Ho, who's a writer and a screenwriter, a screenwriter and a playwright, and a regular attendee here at the Kino. Oh, and if we sell out, I will wear a Christmas jumper for the first time in my <laughs> life. No, no, no. Well, just a Christmas jumper, <laughs> nothing else. Less than that, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we're about half full at the moment, so um, tell your chums. And if you like a sing-song, we might be singing a song or two as well. That was very popular last season. So uh, thank you very much. Uh, thank you to Richard. And uh, we'll see you in two weeks. Thank you very much. Thank you to Richard Farmer for coming down to London to be with us today. You can follow him and the Studio Tech Project, of which he is part, on Twitter, and the details are on the show notes for this episode at keynoquickies.com. Thanks also to Robin the Soundman for twiddling those knobs with such a plum, and of course to Paul, the manager of the Kino, for his unfailing support, and to the rest of the Kino team for their excellent drink-pouring skills. Details about the last film in the season, Scrooge, are on the show notes at keynocookies.com where you can also hear all previous episodes of the podcast and you'll also find that all-important ticket booking link there too. Only one film to go. Do yourself a favour and come along on December the 18th. Kino Quickies is produced by me, Dom DeLaghi, and our resident quota quickie expert is the profoundly handsome Dr Lawrence Napper 
of King's College London. But now though, if you're ready to hear the ending of the story, remember this is going to be one long spoiler, we can return to the synopsis of Death on the Set. Remember, there are no copies currently for sale in the UK of the film, although keep your eyes peeled on Talking Pictures TV because who knows, it might turn up there one day. But for now, this is all we have, so press stop if you really, really don't want to find out how it ends and we'll hopefully see you for Scrooge on December the 18th. But if you're still here and are sure you want to hear the outcome of all this dastardly double dealing, here we go. When we last saw our cast of characters, it appeared that Cayley Morden had managed to convince the police that he was innocent of the murder of Charlie Marsh, and Inspector Burford had released him from custody. But as we now discover, this was just a clever ruse, because as we return to Death on the Set, Inspector Burford, Sergeant Crowther and Caleb Freshman of the Cincinnati Police are hiding in the shadows on Lebanon Street, the location of the late Laura Kane's hideaway. It doesn't take long for Morden to arrive. There's the man. Or the other one. I'd know him a mile off. Unable to get an answer from Laura, who is, unbeknownst to Wall, lying dead behind a curtain, Morden gains access via a ground floor window. Just as Morden is about to discover Laura's body, Burford challenges him through the window. Just a minute, Marsh. What do you want? Open the door. Now come on, open the door. Morden lets the three men into the room. Well, Burford, come on out with it. What do you want? I want to talk to Laura King. I told you the girl I was with was hitting the bottle, didn't I? Well, there's the bottle. He pulls back the curtain and reveals the body of Laura, assuming she just passed out drunk. And there's the girl. And now Burford hits Morden with some big-time logic. And Marsh always smoked a pipe. Morden smoked cigarettes. I noticed the yellow stains on his fingers when I came down to the studio. The body, when I examined it, had particularly white fingers. While yours, I observe. Now look here, if you think I murdered Morden, you're wrong. I told you where I was that night and all the next day. Well, now you know where I was. I was here. And in there's the woman who can prove it. And you still persist in saying you're Marsh? I do. And you swear you didn't leave this house yesterday or the night before? You know all that. And if we say you're Morden, we're wrong. And that woman in there can prove it. That's it. All right, then. Let's have a word with the woman. Go on, wake her up. We'll see what your alibi's worth. Okay. Come on, Laura, wake up. Our old friend Inspector Burfus come to see you. Laura. Laura! But it's Laura. no good. Laura isn't waking up for the very good reason that she's been dead for some time. Laura! Now then, I arrest you on a charge of murder. If you're Morton for the murder of Marsh. If you're Marsh for the murder of Laura Kane. And as far as I'm concerned, you can take your choice. Well, I guess I've had to wait a few years to get you. I didn't kill her. But I reckon our account will be squared up pretty soon now. I swear I didn't kill her. I'd better give you the usual caution. I didn't kill her, I tell you. I warn you that anything you say may be taken down and used in evidence against you. I didn't kill her! As a desperate and sweating Cayley Morden protests his innocence, he looks down at his wrists to find that somehow they are now in handcuffs. Justice, at last, has prevailed. Mm -hmm.